Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Tokushikai Inside Look podcast. This episode is brought to you by our amazing patrons over at Patreon, who have generously donated as little as a cup of coffee to as much as the cost of a bowl of ramen per month. You can find episode videos for these interviews as well as deeper dives into other subject matters at patreon.com forward slash Tokushikai Canada. If you are enjoying this work, please consider supporting us. Hi, my name is uh, Tim McMillan. Uh, I'm a uh, ranchy godan in Kudo. I'm married to Maria Peterson, who is a uh, ranchy rockodan in Kudo. And uh, uh, she's president of the uh, American Kudo Reme and North California Kudo Association. And together we run uh, Redwood Q Dojo, uh, which is situated in La Honda, California, just south of San Francisco. Cool. So you do Kudo. What else do you, do you spend your time in? Um, <laughs> so, yes, uh, we basically live above the Q Dojo. Uh, when Maria uh, had this place built, um, it were the permit required that it was a residence. So above the dojo is our house where we live. So basically we're able to come down here every day, practice on a, on a daily basis, which is, uh, which is wonderful. And uh, uh, it's, it's fantastic to come and practice, you know, um, in the redwood forest here. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I'm umming and ahhing a lot. <laughs> well, so I know that the, this dojo, you had a hand in like building some parts of it. I, I hear you're like a, quite a handyman. How, yes. how did you get into doing all this? How did you even learn like the, the woodworking styles, the craftsmanship and all that? Yeah. So I guess um, as you get old, you realize that um, all the things you did in your life are actually uh, important, yeah? So there's all these skills that I've acquired over the years that um, I, I can use. One of those was uh, working, when I was young as a student, I used to make money uh, working as a carpenter. Um, mostly I was uh, self-taught, but uh, when uh, I married Maria and we opened the Redwood Q Dojo, uh, what we had was basically, um, you know, an, an empty shell. You know, it was a, a building with a beautiful oak floor and a shajo um, and a matoba, you know, uh, the arrow uh, bank uh, along the Amici. But what needed to happen was that uh, it needed all the um, all the functional things to make a, a Q dojo. So we had to make makiwara stands, we had to make bow stands, had to make arrow stands, we had to put in cabinets, um, all sorts of things to actually make it a, a functioning dojo. And that was basically my role, you know, was to, you know, get to town and to, to build all these things. And what we decided was to actually build them using the local redwood. So when the dojo was built, uh, quite a few big trees were cut down and we managed to save some of that wood. 
So a lot of the things that are in the dojo uh, are made of redwood, and it's the redwood from the trees that were standing, you know, where we are now standing, uh, which is uh, it's aesthetically pleasing, and it's sort of a it's very nice that the dojo, you know, encompasses the forest that was here, you know, before the dojo was was built, um, and then that extended to. Uh, building a guest cabin. So we hold seminars. Um, hopefully when COVID is over next year, we'll begin again. Uh, we hold you know, one or two seminars a year and we need a space for visiting teachers. So um, two years ago, before COVID, we were visited by uh, Kiyomoto Ogasawara uh, and we had a, a three-day um, workshop here teaching Reho, teaching uh, Osha, which is the standing uh, Kudo form, and uh, Kisha, which is the Yabusame, uh, hence the wooden horse. So um, we needed somewhere for him to stay, so I put a cabin together in the hillside over there. It's now a, you know, a well-used guest cabin. When we have visitors come, they, they can stay in the, in the cabin. Um, and then because of COVID, uh, we couldn't travel to Japan. And I really, really miss, you know, my yearly onsen visits in Japan. So we decided to bring Japan to Redwood Q Dojo. And I built a Japanese bathhouse with a, a cedar wood tub and a wood-fired boiler. So we also have now the, uh, the little onsen next door, a <laughs> little furo. Uh, which has been really nice, especially you know in the in the winter time when it's cold and dark here in the redwoods. Uh, you know, you know, twice, uh, once, twice a week, we could you know have a, a nice hot soak in a in a cedar wood tub. Um, and the uh, construction is ongoing as well. Uh, next year, we're hoping to, uh, like I said, begin the. Uh, seminars again, and uh, hopefully we'll have an Ogasawara seminar in May. And for that, I'm planning to build a small Reho studio. Uh, so Reho uh, needs to be practiced on tatami, so it will be a nine tatami uh, studio for practicing Reho, and that will be just adjacent to the uh, building here, just to the side of the Yamichi. So uh, plenty of things to do. Yeah. So that's so interesting because if we just think about uh, people having to, like when they're learning Kido out in the West, you have to find ways to make some of these products that mm. like just holding up the makiwara or um, building like something for the, the arrows. So that's very basic woodwork. Like you can make it look really nice, but almost anyone that's just a handyman can do. And then you got the next level up, which is like a cabin. And then you're talking about building like a fully authentic bathhouse. I'd mm -hmm. just be interested to see like that journey of how did you go from just doing some side jobs like as a carpenter self-taught to getting to such mm -hmm. elaborate workings like what was the course of this learning and what kind of projects did you try in between and within your life that got you to this level yeah so it's interesting um funnily enough it's always been part of my kudo life um I began kudo Back in the early 1980s in London, I was a student at the um, University College London doing my postgraduate. 
And I thought it would be nice to have not just a sport, but something to do to help, you know, train body and mind. And I was introduced to a tutor teaching at the Royal Academy of Art. And that tutor was uh, a man called Liam O'Brien. Liam O'Brien was one of the sort of founders of Kudo in the UK, uh, you know, very a long time ago, 19, late, late 70s, early 80s, he, he began uh, teaching Kudo in London. And uh, unfortunately, he's no longer with us. But um, the moment I saw Kudo, I, I went to his class at a um, sports center in the west of London. And the moment I, I saw Kudo, it kind of resonated with me. I thought, you know, this is, um, this is what I'd, I'd like to do. So I became uh, friends with Liam and his student for some years. And uh, he had a lovely house in West London and he needed a, a fence and a, and a driveway gate putting up. So he employed me to build uh, the fence and the driveway you know, gate to his house. And those things are still standing. Um, I made them out of cedar wood, you know, uh, in a very kind of to a traditional pattern. Um, so I've always been interested in, in not just woodworking per se, but design. And my professional life, uh, I actually became a uh, camera designer. So working with, uh, at first it was kind of mechanical engineering with uh, film-based cameras. And then more recently uh, with digital cameras, uh, with um, digital you know, sensor technology, uh, working for GoPro here in the USA. This, that's why I'm in the USA is because I came to work for GoPro. Um, so all elements of design interest me. And obviously wood is nice because I, I don't require lots of technology <laughs> to, uh, to work with wood. You know, it's a material which is very to hand. Um, so, um, so when I was with, with Liam, I, I built things for him and I also built uh, Makiwara stands for his, uh, his group and everything. And um, he introduced me to Anuma Sensei. Uh, I think it was like early 1980s, 1982, something like that. Uh, no, no. Yes. Yes. 82. Yes. Um, he and I went to Paris to visit uh, Michel Martin, uh, to visit a small dojo they had in a little place called Dravai outside of Paris. And at that time, uh, Anuma Sensei and one of his students, Suzuki Sensei, were visiting. So I got introduced to Anuma and had the, uh, the good fortune to have you know, a weekend uh, training with uh, two Hanshi from Japan. And at the end of that, uh, Anuma turned to me and said, Tim-san, my shooting, come to Japan, I'll teach you. <laughs> so I did. I just upped and went to Japan and became a student uh, with Anuma, uh, living in uh, Archery Mansion, which is above the shop in, in Tokyo, uh, Asahi Archery and uh, lived adjacent to Dan de Prospero. At the time, he was uh, writing uh, his book with Anuma Sensei. And I trained there for five years. Um, so three, four times a week, we would go to Toshima Dojo 
and train. And I went from sort of zero to fifth dan in a matter of four years. Uh, and I think then there was a bit of a kind of an, an issue. Uh, several things uh, were conspiring. I had a small child by then, and I was a little bit skeptical of uh, putting this little Western boy through Japanese school. <laughs> you know, the, there's a point at which um, all children play together happily. Then at a certain age, they start to see, oh, this kid is very different. He's got blonde hair and everything. So there was a kind of pressure to go back to the UK. Plus, um, I was living and working in central Tokyo, and the there was a big bubble at that time with the price of land in Tokyo. And just to cover basic rent, I was having to work seven days a week, which didn't really make sense. So it was either a case of moving out of central Tokyo or moving back to the UK. And so my wife and I uh, decided to move back to the UK. Um, so the trouble with that was we moved to a town called Bath, which is in the west of the UK, and it's quite a distance from London. And I was asked to teach Kudo uh, with the group uh, that still existed there. Liam was uh, still in Japan at that time. Um, uh, he, he'd also gone to Japan whilst I was uh, out in Japan. And I had to travel, it was like a three hour, six hour round trip to get to the dojo in London and then back back home. And it wasn't really tenable. So, and also I had a professional life as, as well, and that was kind of getting very busy. So I had to come to a decision to, um, you know, give, give Kudo a rest. And I remember Anuma telling me, you know, before I left Japan, he said, you know, you have to get your priorities right. The first priority is work, you know, to, um, you know, work is your main focus. And after work comes family. And after family comes Kudo, you know, and that's that's always kind of resonated with me. So it, it was obviously a time of life when I had to focus on my, my work and my family, you know, raising the kids and everything. So I kind of stopped Kudo uh, really for about 20 years. Um, I, I didn't uh, I didn't teach. Uh, I, I didn't do much Kudo. I would occasionally pick up the bow and I kept my bows in good condition all that time. Um, but uh, you know, I had to had to give it a break. And uh, so let's sort of move along twenty years. Um, and my oh, sorry, if if you're planning on moving ahead, um, mm. I I do have a question uh, because yeah. you mentioned a couple of uh, well-known names, Liam O'Brien and Onuma Sensei. Mm. I was just wondering when you when you hear those names now, uh, what memories are brought up for either one of them uh, that you might be able to share with the people that have yes. never been able to meet. Yeah. So uh, Liam O'Brien was a very important figure um, for Kudo in the early days when Kudo, you know, was beginning to be taken outside of Japan and teached outside of Japan. And uh, we, in Europe, we had uh, uh, Onuma, Hideharu, uh, Hanshi, and uh, Inagaki, 
uh, sensei. Um, they both came to Europe and, you know, gave uh, demonstrations, you know, performances of, of Kudo in Europe and really kicked off the uh, European Kudo scene. And Liam was very important in that. And I believe he was uh, also important in the translation of the uh, Hasetsu. You know, there's an English translation of the Hasetsu and, and Liam had a, had a lot to do with that. Um, so he was, in terms of the Kudo becoming an international um, Budo, uh, he, he was very in, influential with that. And um, although, like I said, I, I had to take this kind of hiatus, kind of break from Kudo, um, we maintained contact, uh, you know, uh, for a long time. Um, so Anuma Sensei, again, uh, he's very well known because of the book that Dan de Prospero made. And he's very well known amongst uh, Kudoka of my generation. You know, the kind of early, from the late 70s, early 80s, you know, people that um, began to study Kudo because he was one of the few Hanshi who you know, uh, was able to travel to um, Europe and America and teach. And he spoke good English as well. So um, he became a, a kind of hub and a kind of uh, door into uh, Japanese Kudo. And uh, I, I look back on the years, the five years I spent training with him, and uh, it was uh, an unbelievable honor to, you know, be able to train with him. Um, and to get that, that kind of quality of teaching. Um, these days, you know, uh, seminars, international seminars, is are hosted in the US or Europe or Taiwan or wherever, you know, uh, Kudo has become very popular. So, you know, there's a lot of people, <laughs> there's a lot of, you know, they're very crowded and it's difficult to get the kind of one-on-one -on -one time you know, with uh, teachers of, of, you know, Hanshi grade, you know, um, character. Um, so it's something that I, I really appreciate. And uh, I managed to achieve uh, Renshi a couple of years ago. Um, and I'm teaching now here with Maria. But actually it's, um, you know, when I'm teaching, I'm sort of, my mind is going back to Toshima Dojo and thinking, you know, how was I taught this? You know, thinking back to how did Anima, Anuma teach me this or um, what sort of approach do I need to help students uh, with this? And one of the things that I think was very fundamental to Anuma's teaching was the fact that he was a, a great exponent of uh, positive reinforcement. Um, that when you teach, you, you always focus on what the student should do. <laughs> um, I, was, I was told of an interesting thing by uh, a, a language teacher, actually, um, uh, back in the day. Uh, he said to me, you know, positive reinforcement is, is very interesting. And he said, <clears throat> uh, don't think of a rabbit. And when I say to you, don't think of a rabbit, what is the first thing you think of? You think of the rabbit. 
And it's like that with, with students when you're teaching. And it doesn't matter whether you're teaching kudo or teaching language or teaching anything. It's like if, you, if the first thing you say to the student is, this is wrong, that is what gets reinforced. Um, and it's a trap that um, it's so easy to fall into. It's so easy to look at a student and say, oh, this is wrong. This, you know, you're, you're doing that incorrectly. Um, but psychologically, it has, it has a huge impact. Um, so uh, when I you know, was being taught by Anuma, I was very conscious of the fact that, you know, he would, uh, he would not say the don't thing. He would say, do this, think of this, think of, you know, uh, the way, you know, you've got to give the student um, uh, a way to achieve what you want them to achieve, you know? So you've got to think of, how do they achieve what I want them to achieve and to help them uh, with that? So I think that if I take a sort of a general um, uh, memory of, you know, when I was uh, studying Kudo with Luma, I, I think uh, that's something which has really helped me. And he also said uh, very often to me <laughs> when I was struggling, uh, you know, uh, he would say, Tim Tam, life is endless effort. Um, and by golly, it is. Uh, and, you know, that, that's a really, good, uh, a really good, good phrase. So, you know, even when, you know, for example, I you know, may be feeling tired or, you know, lethargic, you know, to come down to the dojo and make the effort, you know, to practice, you know, is, is really important. Yeah. Yeah, it certainly sounds like there are his some of his teachings that have la persisted through all these years, even when you had that time off. I was just thinking within those 20 years where you didn't really practice Kudo, when you came back, what did you find uh, was just like riding a bike that it just came back? And what did you find was like, oh, if you don't use it, you lose it. And you just were frustrated that yeah. it was gone. Yeah, this, this is a very interesting question. Um, my story around coming back to Kudo is very kind of interesting and a little more complex than just um, getting on the bike again. Um, for starters, uh, uh, I, had a, I had a stroke uh, when I was in my late 40s. So um, I've actually uh, put myself through very intense kind of physiotherapy um, to recover what uh, I lost, you know, with the with the stroke. Um, and to most extent, I've I, I've been uh, successful with that. Uh, but there are still things where you know uh, I am lacking. I know that I'm lacking because I'm <laughs> trying to do keto again, and I'm finding you know, parts, uh, you know, with the nervous system and the muscular system on, on my left side isn't what it used to be. And add into that pot, you know, old age, I'm in my 60s now. So, you know, the body isn't as strong and as, um, you know, as kind of good as it, as it used to be. Um, so having to deal with the, with the stroke uh, was, a, was a big thing. And... I dealt with that mostly by, um, I started uh, uh, training for Yabusame horseback archery, uh, literally just after the stroke happened. And if you've seen horseback archery, the Yabusame, 
in Japan, you'll see that it's an incredibly intense sort of physical and um, in a kind of stamina uh, event. You know, you have to ride a horse and shoot. Uh, you have to ride a horse in a Japanese saddle, uh, Japanese style, which is nothing at all to do with American, Western or English riding, whatever. Um, so it, it is a, a, a real sort of physical and mental challenge. Um, but one of the things that actually I didn't lose, weirdly enough, was uh, the tenuchi. Um, so the tenuchi is how you hold the bow with the left hand. It's the crucial interface between you and the, and the bow. And um, interestingly enough, you know, although my, my left arm is a bit crap, <laughs> if I can use that word, um, you know, I, I still have issues with it today in trying to get the, the left arm, the yunde, to perform as I would like it to. Um, the tenuchi has always been there. And uh, I'll be you know, walking down the street or jogging in the woods, and I'll suddenly see that my hand is just, my left hand is just doing tenuchi. It's just always done it. It's something which obviously um, became part of my, you know, whole body, my whole psyche when I was training with Anuma. And um, I even had, even one of the uh, Hanshi, as uh, the last seminar I went to, kind of re remarked on it. Um, so, you know, I, I do feel very sort of blessed to have this, this Tenuchi. Um, uh, and I, I, <laughs> I'm flabbergasted that uh, it actually, you know, after having the stroke, it was still, it's still there, you know, and it still works. Um, so, you know, it's, um, it hasn't been an easy journey uh, back into Kudo. You know, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of hard and painful uh, training. You know, that that, is, uh, that has gone into that. Um, but anyway, coming back to the uh, Yabusame, the horse archery. So I had this stroke, and I at that time um, I actually uh, had a small farm in in the UK. And I had, you know, fields and I had a horse and I was riding. And um, I'd, I'd, I'd had, uh, you know, interaction with uh, Ogasawara Yabusame before from when I was living in Japan. And I worked as an event manager uh, for uh, a couple of Japan festivals which happened in the UK where I invited um, Ogasawara, um, Yabasame, and uh, Yabasame from Nikko Toshogu, a uh, big shrine in Japan, to come to the UK and perform. And I mean, literally, you know, I had a hundred people, you know, come from Japan to perform Yabasame in Hyde Park in, in London. Um, and I arranged horses and did all the site management and you know, a lot of uh, kind of interpreting for that. Um, so, you know, I, I knew the Ogasawara very well. I knew the head priest at uh, Toshogu Shrine very well. So I had this farm and I had a horse and I hadn't done Kido for a long time, but I thought, well, 
actually, um, I'm in a position now I could uh, maybe try some horse archery, uh, some yabusame. So I wrote to uh, the Guji, the head priest at Toshoku Shrine, and said, uh, uh, could I come to Japan next year to train for yabusame? Um, I have a horse and, you know, I, I'm interested to train. And he wrote back saying, oh, Tim San, yes, you should come next month and perform. <laughs> Uh, so that was a little bit, you know, in at the deep end. But I thought, yes, I'll, you know, that, that would be good. And then uh, shortly after that, I had this stroke and uh, woke up, got out of bed, sort of fell over, left side wasn't working. And uh, the doctor rushed me to the, you know, hospital to have a scan and, you know, there's a big hole in the brain and what have you. Uh, and I, I was due to go and perform Yabusame in two weeks. Um, so uh, it was very touch and go as to whether I'd be able to do that. But fortunately, the doctor you know, gave me the release to, to fly uh, two days before I was due to fly. So I went to Japan. Um, so let's say I wasn't in the best condition, um, but uh, you know they, they understood that I had this kind of... Uh, small disaster in my life. Um, so anyway, I, I go up to the um, Nikko Joba Club, the, the riding club in Nikko, where they have the Ogasawara School there. And, you know, they look at me, go, hmm. <laughs> uh, obviously, you know, at that point, I hadn't actually done any training in a Japanese saddle or anything. You know, I, I could ride, but not you know, Japanese fashion. So it was a baptism of fire. Um, there was one week until the performance. So they, they pulled out their most beautiful, fastest horse. He's, he was called Hakuun, which means white cloud. And uh, he used to uh, ride like the wind. He was a beautiful horse. And they put me on him in a Japanese saddle. It was the first time I'd ridden a Japanese saddle. Then they got out the whip and waxed the horse and the horse galloped down the track and got to the end of the track and I was still on it. <laughs> so I rode it back around again and said, hmm, yeah, let's do that again. They whipped the horse, sent me down the track. Um, all I can remember are sort of wind, wind blowing in trees, you know, flashing past and um, managed to come around again. And they looked at me and said, well, at least it's not going to fall off. <laughs> so, uh, then, you know, embarked on a week's crash course in Yabusame. So obviously I still had the kudo skills. So uh, the, the, the shooting, you know, uh, wasn't a problem. You know, handling the bow wasn't a problem. Um, learning how to ride in a Japanese saddle, uh, it, takes, it takes a while because it's so different. It's so opposite to how you know, uh, like I said, English or Western, you know, American Western uh, saddles are done. Um, Just for someone that doesn't know the difference, could you maybe explain what is that? Yeah, sure. So uh, the Japanese saddle is uh, essentially, uh, I think the design probably comes from the Mongolian saddle uh, via Korea. It's four bits of wood. There's a pommel, a front piece, you know, which goes, goes over the, you know, the, behind the shoulders of the horse. And there's a cantle, which goes over, you know, at the, at the back. Then there are two long, longitudinal pieces, and it's tied together 
with hemp rope. And then there are some leather pads underneath it, you know, to protect the, the horse. The stirrups are made of cast iron. They're like a, a kind of slipper shape. Um, but you don't put your feet in them like a slipper. You put your feet diagonally, diagonally in them. So your toes are hanging out the outside edge and your heel is hanging out the uh, inside, you know, back corner. And the way you ride is to point your toes out, push your heels down. And the only contact you have with the horse are your heels against the side of the horse. And your body, you raise off the saddle. So you're in this squatting position, little bit, little bit like a sumo wrestler. You know the position that a sumo wrestler takes before they, they have a bout, um, you know, with the legs you know, out and the, the hips down. Um, very much that position. So it's uh, essentially your, your thigh legs, your, 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 your thigh muscles are creating like a huge spring which supports you above the horse. So if you're able to ride in this position, literally with just one point of contact with the horse, you have to learn balance and you have to learn to keep your center, center you know, your uh, center of gravity, I would say, very low. Uh, but if you're able to ride like that and raise your body off the saddle, then you don't feel any of the motions of, of the horse. The horse can be, you know, walking, trotting, cantering, galloping underneath you, and you will remain smooth, you know, you'll remain static, you know, above the horse. And this is what you see in Yabusami when it's really well performed, is that the horse is galloping and the rider looks like they're just floating in the air. Um, along the track. So, um, but essentially, you know, after a week's training, <laughs> I could understand that, but I couldn't do it. But they gave me a really good horse and I managed to hit all the three targets. So they were very pleased that I, I'd, I'd achieved that. And um, so then for the next, uh, you know, it's been, that was about 18, 19 years ago. So from then on, I would travel to Japan every year in October to go to Nikko to perform in the Yabusame at uh, Nikko Toshogu. And each year I would go and I'd get, you know, a week or so's training, you know, with uh, people at the uh, dojo, uh, the Yabasawara dojo there. So I gradually, you know, acquired, you know, technique and uh, learned how to ride and um, I, I took some Japanese stirrups back to the UK, so I was able to ride in them to learn how to ride in, in that position. Um, so it became a, a regular thing, and it was actually very good for recovering from the stroke because it forced me to en you know, engage in this very strenuous, very arduous uh, kind of training regime uh, before each visit, I would have to spend three months, literally three months beforehand to get my body, you know, strong enough and my weight, <laughs> you know, uh, low enough to be able to, you know, ride the horse and, you know, perform uh, at, uh, in, 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 the, in the Abusame. Um, so it was, um, it was a really good... Uh, uh, you know, schedule. It was like, you know, each year I would kind of reset my mind and my body um, 
a little bit like a Groundhog Day experience. It's like, oh, at the bottom, you know, when you're at the bottom of the track on the horse with the arrow knocked and ready to go, you think, here I am again. <laughs> and you go. And the thing is, um, it's the, the Yabusame is, um, it's uh, gishki, it's a ceremony. So you only get one run and you only shoot three arrows. There are three targets. And uh, if for some reason you can't get an arrow knocked in time or you can't draw the bow in time, you have to throw the arrow away and then go for the next arrow. Each target has, has a specific arrow for it. So, uh, and it's over in, what, 20 seconds, you know. Um, and if you have a very fast horse, it's over in 12 seconds. I think one of my runs, uh, one year, I had a beautiful horse uh, who was, um, you know, a friend sponsored me this horse called Leon. And uh, he was an ex-thoroughbred, uh, Japanese thoroughbred. And he was so fast. Um, some of the other riders tried to ride him and they came off. Well, they didn't come off at the end, but they, well, one of them actually did come off. They tried to ride him one of the years, uh, one, of the, one of the spring festivals and, you know, the rider came off. So basically it was too fast for the Japanese riders, but he was, he was great with me. Um, and I didn't need anybody to hold him. He would, he would come up to the uh, beginning, the beginning, beginning of the track, and he would stand and he'd wait for me to get ready, and then to say go. And when, when I said go, he went. It was, it was so fast. So literally, the, the smallest fluff, the smallest mistake, and it's all over because he's going so fast that there's not no time to recover, um, which means that. Uh, you know, I did. I never hit all three targets again, except for one training session. Um, but uh, I think the the challenge was to ride beautifully and to get to the end and stop. You know, without uh, without falling off. Um, and he, like I said, there's this one time uh, where we timed it, and he covered this track uh, all three targets. Uh, it's a about you know, 250, 300 meters in about 12 seconds. He was doing over 40 miles an hour. Uh, it was extraordinary. Um, so anyway, um, I'm doing the Abusame, um, and I've I come to America and I restart uh, Kudo with Earl Hartman. Um, so I came to the Bay Area to work, and so I put inquiries out, you know, where can I study Kudo? Because I had heard that there were some Kudo Joes here in the Bay. So I was put in touch with El Hartman, and I joined his group and uh, trained with him, and he helped me uh, begin to, you know, come back into, into Kudo. Um, and then through... Uh, the you know Kudo community here in the Bay. I was introduced to Maria at a, um, I think it was a tournament uh, one year, and uh, saw this very elegant lady across the dojo and, <laughs> and thought, oh, that was a very elegant lady. And um, 
So uh, over the years, yes, we you know gradually uh, got together and um, uh, we got married uh, you know, a couple of years ago. And we actually got we had two ceremonies. One ceremony was here in the dojo, and the other ceremony we went to Nikko Toshogu and we're married in the uh, in the shrine at uh, Nikko Toshogu, which was uh, very beautiful. Um, so anyway, our life's work now is to build and to run this uh, this dojo, and um, through my uh, you know contacts with the Ogasawara Ryu, you know, I introduced uh, Maria, and we asked uh, Kiyomoto Ogasawara uh, Waka Sensei if he could come and do the dojo opening. Um, so he came, it was the first time they performed the Hikime ceremony outside of Japan. Um, they came and performed the dojo opening. So from its very, uh, you know, outset, uh, kind of instigating this dojo, uh, there is this relationship with, uh, Ogasawara Ryu. And, uh, over the years we've, you know, hosted seminars here, uh, which have been really well attended. I think the last seminar, I guess you could call it completely sold out. You know, uh, we we were, had, were maxed out on people. You know, for all the three days. You know, it uh, it, it was held, um, and then um, about a month ago, um, he asked us to set up a uh, Ogasawara branch here in the U.S. Again, this is the first uh, overseas branch of Ogasawara Ryu, and um, it's a great honor and it's <laughs> a great responsibility as, as well. Um, but uh, we feel that you know um, it has a it has a, a lot to offer. Um, the uh, training obviously is a little bit uh, different to the uh, Kudo Reme. Uh, type of, of training. Um, there's a lot of um, ceremonial aspects to it, and there's a lot of kind of more original martial uh, martial aspects to it as well. And it's very yeah, fascinating. I would, you know, I would love for you to speak more about. I'd love to, to hear you speak more about Ogasawara Ryu, because I, I think a lot of people are aware of the name, and they're aware that it's almost the foundation of a lot of different Buddha yeah. that we practice. So could you maybe give a quick example of like, what is it, describe it a bit, it's historical value, and then mm. speak to more of like, what is this change and how they seem to be willing to now spread it worldwide? It's not like this thing that's yeah. unique to space. Yeah. Okay. I've got an interesting story. <laughs> so um, I've been living in Japan for two years. Uh, my Japanese was still, my Japanese language it was still very basic, but um, I had a colleague uh, get in touch with me from the UK. He was a, and he wanted to come to Japan to shoot a calendar uh, on Japanese horseback archery, the Yabusame. So I'd been seeing, you know, obviously living in Japan, I saw Yabusame performances, you know, in Tokyo and, uh, and around Tokyo. So I was familiar with, uh, you know, what it is. And I knew that the main dojo uh, 
was uh, for the Ogasawara was down in, in Kamakura. So I went to Numa Sensei and I said, uh, Numa Sensei, um, I have a colleague in the UK who wishes to come to Japan to do a calendar on Yabusame. Uh, would you be able to give me an introduction so that I could, you know, take him to, you know, uh, basically shoot this uh, calendar? Uh, so he said, yes, sure. And uh, a few weeks later, I found myself face to face with the then head of the Ogasawara uh, family. Um, I think it uh, was Kiyonobu. Um, this very elegant gentleman who was, it's like someone had teleported out of Meiji period. You know, <laughs> was sitting in front of me. He had a, I, think, I remember he had a, had a mustache. He was, you know, very, uh, very elegant. Um, and I suddenly realized uh, how out of my depth I was uh, when I wasn't allowed to address him directly. Uh, I had to address his, um, his aide, um, who would then speak to him. And then uh, Mr. Gasawara would then you know, tell his aide, who would then you know, respond to, to me. Um, I suddenly realized, oh, here's, there's something kind of cultural here that uh, uh, I can't even fathom. You know, I don't know enough about Japan yet. I really can't fathom it. Um, and, but they were very accommodating and they, uh, they let uh, myself and my colleague, you know, in, and we, we did a beautiful, he made a beautiful calendar of the uh, Yabusame at, uh, uh, at, at Kamakura. Uh, I think it's um, uh, the Hachimangu shrine in, in Kamakura. Um, so that was my first introduction to Ogasawara. Uh, kind of became aware of the the kind of cultural in, uh, depths behind it there, um, but then also began this kind of working relationship, which you know went through into the Japan festivals in the UK, um, where I was dealing with uh, Kiyotada, the next generation, you know, heir to uh, Ogasawara. And uh, then Kiyomoto, his son, who I first saw, I think he was a six-year-old. Um, he was uh, tied, you know, they tie him as a little boy onto the horse and the horse gallops down the track with this red silk, you know, streamer behind. I remember seeing that, this little kid, you know, very elegant, very stern, doing this, uh, this run on the, on the horse. Um, so then with the uh, Japan festivals in the UK, I was communicating with Kiyotada and uh, Kiyomoto, his son, was performing, you know, uh, the Yabusame. Um, and that was, um, that was uh, great. And we had, I think it was the Crown Prince at the time, Japanese Crown Prince came to, to view it, um, sat with Prince Charles and I was using Royal Navy polo. I, Kiyomoto was riding on Prince Charles's polo pony. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you know, I, I kind of um, got a little bit more uh, under the surface, shall we say, you know, culturally, 
um, getting to know them more. And unlike Kiyonobu, Kiyotada, you know, was more uh, approachable. Um, and also what, uh, what had happened as, as well was they started to actually allow uh, foreigners, non-Japanese in to train in Yabusame. So I knew people in Japan who, you know, uh, foreigners like myself who were beginning to train in Yabusame. So there was this, you know, a little kind of opening up of the Ogasawara uh, Ryu. Um, but it was still, you know, quite, uh, how should we say, because of the role Ogasawara Ryu plays in, in Japanese culture and the ceremonies they perform, it's a very conservative organization. I mean that with a small c, conservative. It's very traditional. Um, and the relationships and the kind of obligation that comes with those relationships, uh, you know, is, is very important. So, um, you know, it's not like you can just waltz in and do stuff. <laughs> it takes a long time. Uh, they, you know, they need to uh, understand that, you know, you are going to be sincere in your approach, uh, you know, uh, before they will let you, you know, in and kind of train and everything else. Um, so anyway, so I had this working relationship with the Ogasawara. So then um, if we come through to when I start to uh, train in Yabusame, um, initially it was through the um, sponsorship of the Guji, the head priest at uh, Toshogu Shrine. Um, but then, um, you know, once uh, Kiyomoto, uh, you know, came here to do the dojo opening, um, both Maria and I were granted uh, licenses. So now I have a uh, Nurimuchi uh, Menkyo. This is the, uh, yeah. Um, in Odasawara, um, your rank is uh, shown by what you wear or what you carry. So this is the uh, muchi, the, the whip, which now I'm now allowed to carry when I uh, perform uh, Yabusame. And I'm really glad because the last horse I rode really didn't want to gallop. <laughs> and I had a, a devil of a time, you know, just trying to get to the end of the, uh, end of the track. Um, so this, you know, you don't have to hit the horse, you just have to hold the whip and the horse knows it has to has to do its thing. So this is, this is really good. Um, and it's the same with the uh, Hosha, with the standing archery as well. Your, your rank within Ogasawara is determined by, for example, how many purple fingers you have on your glove or what style of bow you're, you're shooting with. With the Yabasame is determined by what clothes you're wearing and, and what you can carry here. Um, so anyway, uh, so after, you know, 35-year relationship with the Ogasawara Ryu, uh, I was granted, you know, a license uh, to perform. Um, and I think after uh, the fact that we did these uh, workshops here, um, kind of also, you know, led them to believe that... Uh, you know, uh, we could actually uh, 
from uh, an overseas uh, group here. And what is really surprising actually is the amount of interest there is uh, within the US and well, worldwide now actually, um, because uh, you know there is something in this, the fact that uh, the training you have in Ogasawa Ryu comes from, uh, well, let's say it's historical. You can go back at least 800 years, possibly a thousand or more. Um, people think that Ogasawara Ryu is all about fancy clothes and, and hats and, you know, lacquered bows, the Shigeto Yumi with all the bindings on them and everything. But actually, when you start to practice, you realize that it's fundamentally about um, the kind of original training that you would receive as a samurai. Um, and this, so all that beauty that you see, actually uh, the way they move so beautifully when they perform actually comes from really intense training. And it comes from real sort of uh, control of your, of your body and, and, and your spirit and uh, moving in, in a, in a way which is, which is very, very uh, different. Um, so I think anybody who's uh, practiced uh, Buddha will understand that, you know, that you, you, you have to go really, really deep and train your body and mind to think differently, to move differently, uh, to move correctly. Um, so it's, it's not just about putting on a costume or carrying, you know, a particular item. It's about um, kind of achieving a certain kind of control and mastery of, of your own mind and body to be able to, you know, perform, to do these things uh, beautifully and correctly. So there is a, a challenge there, which um, uh, I wouldn't say doesn't exist in, in uh, regular Kudo, uh, but it, it's like a next level. You know, Kudo will bring you up to a certain level and give you an introduction to uh, something like uh, Reiho. Uh, you know, when you're doing the, uh, going in the dojo and shooting Kudo, you do Taihai. You know, you do this series of uh, motions and everything to move in the dojo and to, you know, set yourself in front of the target and to knock the string and to shoot. Um, having you know, begun to practice Ogasawara, that seems like, you know, the Kudo Renmei style is like basics. Yeah, that, that's kind of where you start, you know. Um, when you start uh, going on to Ogasawara, you have to jump up a level and then another and then another, you know. So it's, um, yeah, I think I was describing it the other day uh, to people um, the last time I went to Japan to watch um, a uh, Kudo um, test down in Kyoto, there were hundreds of people there, hundreds of people taking, you know, Kudo ranks. And it included uh, people taking, you know, uh, uh, Renshi and Kyoshi as well, you know, the, the, the high teacher ranks in Kudo. And watching, you know, hundreds of people come into the shadow and shoot their two arrows, you know, for the test. 
you can spot an Ogasawara person the moment they step through the door. Mm. There's something about um, the way they move and their control. Um, like, you know, they make uh, each, each action look beautiful. And there's this kind of, how shall I describe it? It's like power and softness. If you've ever been in Japan in a Shinkansen station, the bullet train station, and the bullet train comes in, this huge thing, you feel the power. This thing has been traveling at, you know, hundreds of miles an hour. It's an amazing machine. And it comes in and, you know, uh, there's not a lot of shaking. It's, it comes in very smoothly and slows and slows and slows. And you can't tell when it stops. You know, it's moving in slower and slower and slower and saying, oh, it stopped now. But I couldn't tell. There was no point at which it kind of stopped. It's that kind of feeling. It's such kind of control and, and power. And I guess that's, that's what I, uh, yeah, I think that, that's what I feel with the uh, Ogasawara. It's something also, um, you know, Anuma, Anuma Sensei uh, died in uh, the early 90s. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a kind of uh, a great loss. But um, thinking back to his, his teaching and the way he taught me to breathe and to move in the dojo, I feel there's uh, something very close. You know, there's a connection there with Ogasawara. Uh, um, you know, there's a lot of um, modern day Kudo, you know, actually, you know, comes from Ogasawara um, and other, you know, Honduru and, you know, a lot of other schools as well. You know, modern Kudo is like a, you know, a kind of synthesis of all these different, uh, different schools. And since, you know, the um, 70s and 80s, it's actually gradually um, kind of uh, changed into kind of its own thing now through gradual changes made over the years. Um, but I, I feel that the uh, Ogasawara approach, um, I've, I feel it's m closer to how I was taught by uh, Anuma Sensei. Well, that, that's beautiful, especially when you're saying how the, the Shinkansen, I could totally picture it when, when you're mentioning mm -hmm. it. Uh, up until that point, I thought you were trying to demotivate people to do something that takes, what, 35 years to build up a relationship is more rigorous than anything you've done before. And, and you're trying to spread this super conservative art in like the most like new thinking, innovative space in the world in Silicon Valley. Like what, what is your vision for now being, <laughs> trying to take this to the rest of the world? That, that's a huge responsibility. How are you looking forward to, to bringing this? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yes, Ogasawara has this enormous depth of history, an enormous depth of knowledge, um, an enormously important role in, you know, Japanese culture. Um, you know, it, it's like, you know, when there's an imperial marriage, you know, then 
Uh, I imagine they go and ask, you know, Ogasawara, how do we do this? Because they have it all written down. You know, they they are the masters of uh, of, of reho, you know, uh, of of elegance and etiquette, you know, courtly etiquette. Um, and you and you find that, uh, for example, you know, I'll, I'll give you give you one example. So in kudo, in the dojo, you have the uh, kamiza, which is behind me. You see up there, there's the shrine. Um, that is the uh, kamiza. That is the high point in the dojo. So when you come into the dojo to shoot, you bow to the kamiza. Yeah, you. Um, you uh, pay respect to the dojo, the, the high point in the dojo. Uh, if the sensei is here, then obviously you bow to the sensei as well. But the, uh, when you come in, the, the kamiza is it. The, the dojo is, you know, how should we say, a thing in its own right, and you have to respect it. Um, so when you, when you shoot with uh, kudo, as you move in the dojo, and the kamiza is normally on your right-hand side if you're facing the target, and the kamiza is on the right-hand side. When you move forwards, you move forwards with the left foot. And when you move backwards, you move backwards with the right foot. Um, so you, you get an idea that uh, there's a certain way of moving in relation to the kamiza, the, the high point. Yeah. Now. In a conversation with uh, Kimoto Sensei, um, you know, uh, he he explained to us that um, Kamiza is also uh, mobile as well. Um, kamiza may be here one moment and then over there another moment. When Maria and I went to get our licenses, we had to uh, go uh, through two rooms. Uh, to the Soke, uh, Kyotada. Um, and as we entered one room, Kamiza was on this side. And when we entered another room, Kamiza was on the other side. And we had to adjust how we moved accordingly, whether we move with the left foot or the right foot. Uh, and then Maria and I were side by side. And Maria is a woman and I'm a man. So that also influenced how we move as well. So you have to form like a, a mental impression of where is Kamisa, you know, because it may change. So, for example, if we're in the dojo and the soke is very close, then he should be Kamisa and you should move accordingly when you're close to him. If you're down at the targets, then, you know, Kamisa may be the target because it's closest to you. Um, but you know, this doesn't come just through a notion of showing respect. Um, if you imagine, you know, you're back, you know, 800 years ago and you're in a room uh, with a bunch of guys, I'm speaking very kind of loosely here, uh, with a bunch of guys with very sharp weapons. <laughs> and if I move uh, in relation to somebody and put my inside, yeah, leg forward, that's threatening because it puts me in a fighting stance relative to that person. Whereas if I move with the outside leg, it actually keeps me open to that person and says that I'm not a threat. So 
The eye notion of Kamiza Shimaza is part of Japanese culture. Uh, it, it shows paying respect to somebody, but it, it actually, you know, its origins are also in incredibly important um, martial um, <clears throat> protocol to make sure that you did not get your head chopped off <laughs> because you were a threat, perceived as a, as a threat. You know, these things uh, come out of, you know, incredible, you know, practicality and, and, and pragmatic uh, uh, instances, you know, uh, situations as, as well. So, and, and I guess this explanation is also a very sort of, um, how should we say, <sighs> mm, um, kind of superficial, you know, I'm explaining it in the way that, um, you know, people can hopefully understand, um, but uh, to actually train uh, for this so that you instinctively know how to move in relation to uh, a space or a person in that space, um, it takes a lot of time because it has to become something which is instinctive. You have to have an instinctive, you know, your instinctive brain has to automatically, you know, <laughs> get it right, you know. Um, so it's, uh, like I said, you know, it's, it's a kind of um, understanding of, you know, why, why certain things are done in, in Kudo, but, you know, you take it to the next level and you, you understand, you get this deep, deeper understanding of, of why you do this and, and what it means. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I, I was just uh, imagining it. The first thing that comes to mind is like most of the other Budo arts, you can do it as a hobby and still get to relative proficiency. But something like mm. this is you you can't. You have to really be committed to it. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to embody these principles and yeah, yeah, make it live. Yeah, it um, it, it's very much. Uh, how should we say? You have to take the wax off approach. You know, you know the you know uh, karate kid. You know the wax off thing. Um, the wax off approach is so important. For example, when I was in in Tokyo training with Anuma Sensei, you know, every day I, I'd go to work uh, and I would be on the uh, Maranucci line, you know, subway. Uh, normally standing because it's you know, crowded and I, I'd be holding the, you know, one of the, the, the posts in the, in the, in the, in the train, you know, so I, and I would hold it with my left hand and I would practice Tanuchi, you know, on my journey to, to work and back. Um, you know, so again, it's, it's a question of, uh, because you have to, train until it becomes instinctive. You have to look for things in your everyday life that you can use, you know, the wax off approach. Um, so for example, um, maybe, you know, you have the living room upstairs and you say, okay, that part of the living room is going to be Kamiza. So everything I'm going to do when I come into this room, out of this room, I will respect, you know, Kamiza. And initially, it's quite hard. You have to think about every goddamn time you move your feet. Is this correct? You know, 
But then gradually, you know, it becomes more and more of, uh, it becomes more ingrained. You know, um, we have it in the dojo here. We have very strict rules about when you come over the threshold, which foot you step with first. And when you exit and enter, you know, to the uh, matoba, how, how you do that. And the students, you know, gradually, you know, learn to do this. Um, uh, so you have to find ways to actually, you know, uh, make it make it part of part of your life so that when it comes to the actual performance, you know, it's something that happens instinctively. Um, I had another good quote from uh, Kiyomoto uh, Sensei, uh, when I was training for Yabusame, he said that, you know, your best performance will be your worst performance in practice. <laughs> so what he means is, it's like, if you take, you know, if you're practicing, and if you take your worst performance there, that's probably what your performance on the, on the real, and the real event is, is going to be like, yeah? So you, you know, and it, it may sound really, really tough and really hard, but it's really true. So you have to, you know, if you're to perform well at a, in a natural, you know, event or ceremony or something, you have to bring your worst case up to a level that is good for that. Yeah, uh, it really focuses the mind. So to people out there, I would say that, um, you know, uh, training Ogasawara style is, is tough, but um, now that, uh, you know, Ogasawara Ryu is kind of opening up um, to people around the world, and I've seen uh, students that uh, Kimoto Sensei is training, you know, by remote video in Finland and other places, um, they are very sincere in the, in the way they train, and they train very carefully. Um, and the, uh, how should we say, the results of the training, you know, speak, speak for themselves. You know, the speed at which somebody can go from zero to, you know, a high level, you know, is, is really, really uh, amazing. You know, because it, uh, you, 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 <laughs> you realize that it's not just about throwing sticks at a bit of paper. <laughs> you know, it's about controlling your body and your breathing and your, and your, and your mind. And once people understand that, then the technique improves really, really quickly. Yeah, and I feel like we could talk about this for ages, and I would love to maybe have both you and Maria on uh, again in the future to just go mm -hmm. into this one topic. It would be great to have that opportunity. Uh, just to wrap up this uh, in initial interview with you, I thought mm -hmm. I'd ask a couple of just closing questions. Uh, okay. We get to know you a little better. Uh, one question would be: Do you have a quote or a proverb or something that you you really like that uh, you think about? Yeah, uh, you know, I come back to Numa Sensei's words. You know, life is endless effort. Um, because there are times in life when you feel, you know, oh, it's be so easy just to give up. Um, you know, effort is you know painful. <laughs> You know, it uh, requires, you know, doing, you know, using these poor old muscles and, and bones. Um, you know, if you've got to tackle something which seems like a, uh, like you're out of your depth, 
you know, keep your breathing, keep your center and, you know, put your maximum effort into it. You know, when, when, when you're shooting, you know, it's the idea that you put your whole body, zenshin, into each arrow, you know, and you, and you do that and you think you've put your all into this and then you find, oh, I've still got energy for another one, you know? So um, it is this thing that, you know, when you're, um, there's always more energy there to be had you know, if you put your effort into it, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, I think, I think that sums it up for me. <laughs> uh, related to this concept of struggle, we all know that in our, in our practice, sometimes the best teachers are our mistakes and our own failures and losses. Do you have one major one that helped you some kind of painful event or experience that you've had that really changed the way that you practice or helped you in in a big way yeah i think um i i would guess you know the defining you know point in my life you know was having a stroke you know having this kind of near-death experience where suddenly you realize that um life not only life is tenuous but your what you think is a given, your you know physicality, your you know skill and ability, is also tenuous. It you know you just take it for granted, and then you know suddenly it can be taken away from you. Um, you know that that really focuses the mind, and obviously that has kind of informed my my life since then in the choices I've made to work less, <laughs> train more. Um, you know, all, all this, uh, all this sort of thing and to decide, you know, that, um, really wanted to settle down with Maria and, uh, build the dojo here. That's wonderful. It's so great to see that even after that experience, you've been able to do so much more, uh, hmm. with it. Uh, so thank you. This has been such a wonderful conversation. Uh, do you have anything that you'd want to share with the audience just in closing? Uh, uh, gosh, I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, everyone's welcome to uh, come visit. Um, you know the uh, the dojo here, um, and you know we look forward to uh, having more seminars in in the future. And uh, yeah, we we uh, really enjoy sharing. You know what we know uh, with with people with our students. Um, you know, I would say we're we're both um, you know very sort of grateful and uh, honoured by our students and their sort of determination and uh, willingness to uh, to train and to uh, and to be with us. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much, and have a great night. Yeah. Thanks, you too. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode because we have a lot more exciting conversations to share as we explore the world of the traditional Japanese martial arts. The Inside Look podcast is made possible by our patrons over at Patreon. So if you enjoy this work and want them to continue, please consider supporting us for as little as a cup of coffee. There are many more ways for us to work together by connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram at tokushikai.canada and subscribing to our monthly newsletter at subscribe.tokushikai.ca. 
Until next time, thanks for listening.